Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. April always makes me happy. It's my birthday month, and if I'm lucky, and if my friends and family know what's good for them, then it's a month filled with books as gifts. If there is a better gift than a book, I haven't discovered it yet. I'm Paige Nick, and welcome to Book Choice on your favorite station, Fine Music Radio. We're going to spend the next blissful hour talking about books and listening to music. We've got a bumper show this month filled with interviews and reviews, and as always, lots of views. In our guest review spot this month, we welcome Jabulani Sigege, who will be reviewing Bruce Fordyce's latest book, Winged Messenger, as well as 10-year-old Yusuf Asfat and his latest favorite read by Bear Grylls. And let's not forget the rest of our regular wonderful reviewers. So, let's get reading. Starting off the show here on Fine Music Radio, Anthony Frijan has crawled right into the belly of the beast, literally, with Inside the Belly of the Beast, the real Bosasa story by Angelo Agrizzi. This is a multi-billion rand corruption memoir. It's got whistleblowing and greed and corruption and politics. So just another Monday in South Africa then, hey, Anthony. What happens when you look inside the belly of a beast? In the case of Angela Greasy's excellent book, Inside the Belly of the Beast, you'll find state capture, greed, corruption, money laundering, narcissism, infidelity, hypocrisy, tax evasion, white-collar crime, threats and bullying, all coming together in this outstanding, very well-written book. Oh, I left out attempted murder, a very strange death, and people who just don't seem to be around anymore. It's an alarming read, like a very bad TV soapy, with an improbable plotline. Alarming, because Angelo, everyone called him Angelo, knew all about the inner workings of Busasa for 20 years as chief operations officer. Busasa was a company specializing in providing services to government, most notably prison services. A perfect opportunity for getting grubby hands on vast amounts of cash, billions of rand, cash, stored all over the Basasa offices, frequently in brown paper packets for delivery to delighted recipients of illegal gains, amounts that read like phone numbers way beyond the comprehension of the vast majority of us. Names well known in the corridors of questionable deals, bribery and corruption appear throughout, even a figure from the murky past of Brett Kebbell's assisted suicide stroke murder puts in an appearance. At the top of all the rottenness, one name stands out. Gavin Watson, sociopathic narcissist, man of facelifts and Botox, hypocrite, he professed to be religious. For nearly 20 years, Angelo Greasy fell under his charismatic spell. To quote Angelo, In reality, I had become sucked into the acquisition of my own personal wealth, and so I refused to see the cracks in the house that Gavin Watson lorded over. I was blinded by my own greed, an ever-hungry, ever-expanding machine of greed and corruption. 
Watson had all the right political contacts and knew precisely whose outstretched palms to Greece. To quote from the book, Gavin Watson, drawn to politics like a fly to manure. If you were politically connected and politically knowledgeable, your future with Gavin was bound to be a financially lucrative one. Angelo came from a very ordinary background, easily seduced by the enormous amounts of money available to him. From the outset, he had a very strong work ethic and with no formal education, a gift for organizational and people skills. As someone who had inside information told me, everyone liked Angelo. He honestly seemed to care about all the people who worked for him. When Angelo Greasy decided to appear before the Zondo Commission, threats were made on his life. He knew that becoming a whistleblower was going to be a difficult and dangerous decision. Since his appearance before the Commission, one has to ask how many charges have been laid against any of the people mentioned in this book. Finally, we come to the very strange death of Gavin Watson in a car accident. Many questions asked, but very few answered. There appear to be many holes in the story released publicly. Has the result of the autopsy been released? Not as far as I know. In a strange way, I feel a certain sympathy for Angelo Greasy. In this very honest account, I don't feel Angelo has told all, and perhaps another book can be expected. I hope so. I highly recommend Inside the Belly of the Beast by Angelo Agrisi. Well-written, clear and concise. Published by Truth Be Told Publishing. Life is not a highway strewn with flowers. Still it holds a goodly share of bliss. When the sun gives way to April showers, here's the point you should never miss. Though April showers may come your way, they bring the flowers that bloom in If it's raining, have no regrets, because it isn't raining, rain, you know, it's raining violets, and where you see clouds upon the hills, you soon will see crowds of daffodils So keep on looking for a bluebird and listening for his song Whenever April showers come along
you see clouds upon the hills, you soon will see clouds of daffodils. So keep on looking for a bluebird and listening for his song. Whenever April showers come alone. That was April Showers here on Fine Music Radio, sung by Al Jolson. We continue our book choice adventure now with a brand new book that's only just hit the shelves. It's called The Heart is the Size of a Fist and it's by P.P. Fourie. I think you're going to be hearing this title a lot because it looks like this book could just snag a handful of literary awards. Renelle Hart Jaspin joins us to review this harrowing but mind-blowingly beautifully written memoir. Our reviewer, Renelle, has been a practicing psychologist in Joburg for the last 25 years, and she's also a published writer and a poet, and she's a contributing author in the Life Writing Collective anthology called This Is How It Is, which was launched in 2018. Renelle is also a regular contributor on the Good Book Appreciation Society, which is a book club on Facebook that has almost 14,000 very active reading members. And when I saw Renelle's incredible review of this book on the page, I just had to ask her to share it here on Book Choice. This evocatively titled book is prefaced by three wonderful quotes about the nature of memory. Salman Rushdie's From Midnight's Children, a quote by Julian Barnes from The Sense of an Ending, and this one, tellingly, by David Shields. He said, anything processed by memory is fiction. Thus, even memoir is fiction. And this is how I read this book, the fiction that is Peter Porphyry's memories of what happened to him growing up as an only child, a child who witnessed his mother being physically and mentally abused by his alcoholic, pull-popping, brilliant, beautiful, sensitive, philandering, damaged and violently unstable father. It's a story also of fleeing and surviving this together with his mum, who eventually manages to escape. It's also the story of his reconnection with his half-brother and of healing enough from his traumatic childhood to be able to tell about all this with shocking tenderness for his brother, his mother, for himself as a child and for himself as a queer man. And also ultimately for his father, with whom he never reconciles, but keeps a carefully circumscribed and consciously curated connection with through his much younger half-brother, which is how the story ends. His story and memories of his father integrating his brother Ben's altogether different memories of the man he called dad. I really love the structure of this book. The first and main section, Time Past, is a collection of vignettes of varying lengths, all referencing specific and particularly meaningful memories filtered through the consciousness of the now adult Paul, gradually stringing together in coherent shape what happened to him as a child to the family, to the young adult, and to the mature adult. I loved how each chapter, each vignette really, could stand alone as exquisite prose pieces describing and revealing the terrible complexities of growing up with a father whom the child desperately wants to love and identify with, but chronically witnesses the cruelty of, 
all the while feeling helplessly protective towards his mother. It's also the parallel story of the unfolding of the writer's sexual identity as he navigates the dynamics of an unstable and an unsafe home space. And it is also the story of how families betray children when abuse is denied and minimized. A brilliant but subtle, almost matter-of-fact, portrayal of the horror of generational trauma. The second section, Time Present, brings the reader up to date in Paul's life. How he reconnects with his half-brother, how they slowly start weaving their stories together, and how he negotiates around writing his story of their father with the full realization that Ben has his own and different story and memories and an altogether different relationship with his still alive but old and unwell dad. This book is beautifully written, well-constructed, psychologically real and rich in insights and self-awareness. A terrible, beautiful book dedicated to the writer's mother who's still alive. It left me with deep empathy for the main characters. The writer, his mother, his half-brother, and as devastating as it is, also for his father. This is not a sensational, vengeful book, even when read as purely memoir. This is a work of lyrical literary beauty and psychological depth and elegance. I was hooked on the first page, also the shortest chapter, one page only. This is how it goes. I remember, in no particular order, the binary star system Capella, which orbits itself, a duet like lovers, a couple in embrace, beholding in wonder the end of the world, tinted all honey and blood. A boy wearing makeup, timing an oncoming car as he runs to cross a road on a hot, hot day. A lover, drowsy and naked, assuring me that something beautiful, something gentle will remain, even if we become monsters. Snow falling on water, dissolving on the surface of a lake. A woman, bereft and in agony, enjoining me to choose pain over safety. The rushing sadness associated with profound feeling, awe, always, always him, her, the music, the words, the splendid imperfections. I highly recommend this book. The Heart is the Size of a Fist by P.P. P. Fourie sounds like a difficult but beautiful must-read. As Renal says, this is not a forgive-and-forget-happily-ever-after kind of story. It's a remember-and-learn-to-tolerate-and-manage-the-emotional-schools-of-this-kind-of-trauma kind of story. Next up, how about a rather fun interview about a rather interesting-sounding novel? Philip Todras joins us to interview Lynn Joffe, author of local debut novel The Gospel According to Wanda B. Lazarus. The Gospel According to Wanda B. Lazarus, a novel by Lynn Joffe, and I have Lynn on the line with me. And I'm going to start by just quoting Stephen Fry. Just what the world needs now, a novel charged with music, energy, bounce, juice and joy. And really my first question, Lynn, is what juice were you on to produce such a raunchy romp through approximately <laughs> 2,000 years of history? <laughs> and hello, Philip, and thanks for that intro. I think the juice is probably creative energy, um, I've run a business for a long time. I've been writing since, you know, I came out the womb, and it was time to kind of consolidate and focus. So the juice is, in a sense, the inspiration. And then uh, what he didn't say was a lot of very hard work for five years, um, half of it in, as an MA in creative writing at Wits, and half of it with, a, with an editor who helped me to actually bring it into publication. So juice is just the 1%, the 99% of sheer hard work. 
Well, I just think it's going to be a very exceptional amount of that 1%, and I'm not going to interrogate you too closely, <laughs> but I must tell you that this was a wonderful romp. And what are the ideas that sort of got your juices flowing? I had wanted to explore the idea of the wandering Jew, and I, I know not many people know about this, but it was an anti-Semitic glyph that was created in the Middle Ages to, in a sense, justify why there was anti-Semitism in the world. And it's existed for so long, I think it has a lot to do with the idea of who killed Jesus. And when I was a child, I grew up in Aberdeen, Scotland, where there were just no Jewish people. And I was asked by six- and seven-year-olds whether I killed their Lord. And it was a very traumatic experience for a six- or seven-year-old to and go home to mommy and say, Mommy, am I a Jew? And couldn't understand why there was antipathy, if you want to call it that. But, and, and so I wanted to explore that concept originally as a sort of a memoir. And then Wanda B. Lazarus <laughs> kind of came in and took over. And because she's gone through, because I put her back, I re-engineered her back to the beginning of time or, or the time of the crucifixion, that all through history, we've had this anti-Semitism. In the Middle Ages, they kind of nailed it with this smelly, hook-nosed wanderer. Um, and I wondered what would happen if I created her as a Jewish female, foul-mouthed, sexually charged, freewheeling pikara, which is a, a sort of a, um, an, a, a pre-novel form of, of, of writing. And so she and I went on this journey to, which is, for example, I, I, I haven't covered the Holocaust time because it's been covered and covered and covered and things that went on in the German Holocaust happened throughout history. So any reader who's actually heard of this idea, I wanted it to be funny, um, which is sort of a dark comic, almost like there was a movie, Life is Beautiful, if you remember that, that Italian film. Absolutely. where there was a little boy. and So she had always to use, if you like, her humor and her smarts and her chutzpah to get out of situations in reality. And then at the end of every episode, she's accidentally cursed with immortality in chapter one. So once the reader understands what's happening, she actually dies at the end of each episode, returns to a pleuromic state, which is almost like the subconscious where the muses task her. But anti-Semitism and the voice of the woman, I wanted to, if you look at the, the front cover, and you can see um, this glyph that I took from, from a, an actually a mosaic from the second century. The character has no mouth. And I found that very strong because I could actually give Wanda a voice and give the feminine a voice. And I hope that I've done that. You certainly have done it. And in fact, I think the only qualm I might have is that you are annoyingly clever about telling your story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the other questions I have for you is I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not going to be sure that you want to even confess to this one. Mm -hmm. Am I actually reading a book by Lynn Joffe, or is this another reincarnation of Wanda B. Lazarus having a voice and being charged by the muses to come out yes. with something more inventive yes. to tell the story? Well, it's, uh, that's such an interesting question. And, and in fact, when, when, when my fairy godfather, Stephen Fry, wrote to me after the first shot, and said, I love so much about what you've done, meaning me, but it's actually what Wanda's done, which keeps me humble in the sense that, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a literary thing, to be able to actually create a character that comes out of oneself, but then actually almost a separate, like a doppelganger, or almost like a, a haunting, if you like, that if the character didn't want to do anything, it wouldn't happen. If the character wanted to, for example, there's a lot of sex in the book, but it's satirical sex. 
and uh, wonder wanted sex and and <laughs> the sexual aspect of the feminine is always you know be the passive be the one to receive i wanted to see what would happen if she would go out and and seek it which of course i did do in my very early youth although i'm very happily married now and never seek it out but there is an aspect to the feminine you know of, of this passivity which i i wanted to in fact it's a heroine's journey but it's a it's a satire of the heroine's journey which is in a sense the male journey is very understood the hero's journey and overcome obstacles um, Wanda is on a different journey, but it's almost based on a similar skeleton of an odyssey or a quest, actually. Quest it, novel. it certainly is a quest, but uh, you might have convinced yourself, I'm not entirely convinced that you're not reincarnated, but that's a question you're going to have to deal with the muses. And the only thing I'm quite concerned about uh, with the feminine point of view is that Wanda B. Lazarus, in all those years, doesn't seem to have actually put in a strong enough voice for the feminine voice up wherever it, it, it is up there. It's very interesting that you say, um, you speak about reincarnation because the, the idea of the wandering Jew in different languages is the Ivachayut, meaning the eternal Jew. And I was very taken, that's why I wanted to explore the myth because they speak about the wandering Jew in mythology didn't die. They were eternal. And so <laughs> reincarnation, and, and if you look at Jewish history, and, and you, you, we can't go into that, we haven't got time. Okay, well, but what I'm going to say is... The idea of reincarnation, of reinventing oneself, of, of, of all these philosophical terms, I didn't want to bang anyone over the head with the theory. I just wanted it to be part of, of the discussion. Well, I'm going to agree with Professor Neville Hurd of the University of Texas in Austin, who says a unique and significant contribution to South African letters, contemporary Jewish literature, and feminist comedic writing a superb wow. comic novel. I don't think I could say it better myself, so congratulations <laughs> to you. Thank and for you anyone, so I'm sure they'll have a very good read.
I'm Paige Nick, and you're tuned in to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. And that was April in Paris, played by Count Bassi and his orchestra. And before that, The Gospel According to Wanda B. Lazarus by Lynn Joffe. And a great big happy 70th birthday to Exclusive Books. We love the fact that as part of your birthday celebrations, you're sponsoring Fine Music Radio's Book Choice. Here's to many more reading decades ahead. John Hanks goes on walkabout with walking safaris of South Africa, guided walks and trails in national parks and game reserves by Hlengiwe Magagula and Dennis Costello. What a pleasure to review one of the best presented travel guides I've come across in a very long time. I'm referring to Hlengiwe Magagula's and Dennis Costello's Walking Safaris of South Africa. I'm enthusiastic about this book because I'm a great believer that spending time walking in the bush opens up a whole new world that's almost impossible from a vehicle. On foot, you can access places you cannot get to from a vehicle. Hear bird calls and insects, which are so often missed when driving, appreciate an astonishing array of scents, hardly ever noticeable from a vehicle, and even more importantly, have the opportunity to see at close quarters many of the smaller species which can all too easily be overlooked. If anyone needs convincing to undertaking a walking safari, do no more than to look at the excellent photographs in the book and marvel at the opportunities available in South Africa alone. Let me stress that you do not have to be super fit to go exploring on foot. Although all the walks described are led by professional guides, there are three distinct categories of walks, from the gentle and relatively easy day walks from camps and reserve gates, the multi-day wilderness trails, and the ultimate backpacking trails where participants have to carry everything they need. I can understand apprehension about setting out on foot in a protected area where you're likely to come across dangerous animals quite regularly, but you can rest assured that the guides leading your group have the best possible qualifications from the Field Guides Association of South Africa, or FGASA, as it's also known, a most demanding qualification that requires a minimum of 600 hours in the field and at least 300 logged dangerous game encounters. The two authors are obviously very experienced hikers, resulting in a book packed with quality, available information to help you to decide when and where to walk in the 59 options described in South Africa, with an additional two in Eswatini and one in Botswana. What is particularly useful are the concise summaries of the type of experience available at each location, physical demands of each option, when to go, how to make a booking, the costs, what to wear, and what to carry. An additional bonus is a delightful and entertaining selection of anecdotes, of first-hand experience of some of the walks, adding an authenticity to the text, which is so often missing in travel guides. Describing one of her walks in the Kruger National Park, Sling Giwe writes, By the last day, I'd stop worrying about seeing lions. I was just happy to know they were out there, like the civet and the porcupine, living their lives unbothered, less interested in us, and we were in them. In a few days, our footprints would blur under hoof and paw, like all those who had walked here before. Me, I'd happily reverse time and do it all again. And there are others of a similar nature. 
there is really no substitute for enthusiastic and passionate writing. And I must congratulate the authors and publishers for a production which I'm sure will stimulate those who have not spent any time walking in protected areas to give it a try and for those who already experience the advantages to make reservations for one or more of the 62 options described. The title of the book again is Walking Safaris of South Africa, Guided Walks and Trails in National Parks and Game Reserves. It's published by Straight Travel and Heritage in Cape Town and is available for 270 rand. That last book was Walking Safaris of South Africa, Guided Walks and Trails in National Parks and Game Reserves by Hlengiwe Magagula and Dennis Costello, right here on Fine Music Radio. And I'm your book choice host, Paige Nick. We'll hear from Beryl Eichenberger next about Eli's Promise by National Jewish Book Award winner Ron Balson. Ronald H. Balson was another first for me. So many books, how to choose. But on the recommendation of a friend, I was fortunate to lay my hands on Ellie's Promise. Balsam is an award-winning author of historical fiction that will resonate with so many. Bringing the Holocaust into sharp perspective, its effect on one family, betrayal, greed, and a search for justice, Ellie's promise gets right under your skin. Perhaps this shot sums it up well. National Jewish Book Award winner Ron Balsam returns triumphantly with Ellie's promise, the captivating saga of the Holocaust and its aftermath, spanning decades and continents. Readers will not be able to put this book down, but will turn the pages compulsively with heart in throat, eager to learn the fate of the Rosen family. Bolton's meticulous historical detail, vivid prose and unforgettable characters further solidify his place among the most esteemed writers of historical fiction today. And that was from Pam Genoff, who is the New York Times bestselling author of The Lost Girls of Paris. I could not agree more. This was a story that I devoured with a myriad of emotions as the story unfolds. Fury, heartbreak, and frustration being but a few. Bolson evokes all of this and more in his compelling narrative. But as Bolson says in his acknowledgments, Eddie's promise is at its heart a story about corruption and war profiteering. War is wealth. We've seen it across the centuries unscrupulous manipulation of government officials and incitement of the people. Nothing much has changed. There are always those who make a profit out of war. And do they always come to justice? Well, we can't really answer that question, can we? But it was this aspect that grabbed me in Ellie's promise. As we move across three time frames, 1939-1940 and the invasion of Poland, following through to 1945 and a displaced persons camp, and then finally to the Chicago of 1965 and the start of the Vietnam War, we follow Ellie Rosen and his quest for justice. 1939, with Ellie Rosen, his wife, Esther, and son, Isaac, are residents of Lublin, Poland. Their lives are good. The family has a brickyard and construction company and are a comfortable and loving unit. As the Germans march into Poland, annex the Jews, ransack their businesses, and proceed to devastate the country, the family business has an important role to play in the German plan. But, of course, it cannot belong to a Jew. There is always a fixer, and he comes in the form of employee Maximilian Polski. He had no scruples, 
He sees a gap, any gap, and goes for it. Collaborating with the Nazis, he promises to protect the family at a price. And as he becomes a trusted friend of the Nazi officers, he becomes more and more greedy, to the detriment, obviously, of the Rosen family. 1945, and Eli and Isaac, barely alive, are rescued from Buchenwald by the Americans. The DP camp in Allied-occupied Germany is their temporary home as Ellie searches for Esther and waits for a visa to the USA as Europe procrastinates on the Jewish refugee question. When Eli hears of a man selling illegal American visas, there's an uncanny resemblance to the max of the past. Chicago, 1965, and Ellie rents a room in Albany Park. And here the novel takes on a thriller aspect, political intrigue, corruption, the Vietnam War, and the 25-year search for Esther culminate in a climax that leaves you with some satisfaction. Smoothly traversing the three time zones and environments, Bolton writes crisply and atmospherically that some promises, a sacred oath to the Ellie that gave them, fall out of anyone's control is a continuous and utterly understandable theme, and Bolton has created an enthralling story. In case you missed it, the book being discussed there was Eli's Promise by Ron Balson. Now, Vanessa Levenstein takes some time out from reading to chat to Escape from Lubumbashi author Estelle Nethling about this true story of Adolphine, a refugee from the DRC. Escape from Lubumbashi, a refugee's journey on foot to reunite her family by Estelle Nethling, is a powerful true story about Adolphine Misikabu, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, who was 22 when she had to flee her war-ravaged home. Joining us on Book Choice telephonically is Estelle Neertling. Welcome. Hello, Vanessa. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Now, in the book's foreword, it says it can be emotionally draining to sit for weeks and months and listen powerlessly to such heart-wrenching stories. Yet you committed to this process, and the book took over four years to write. How did it affect you? Vanessa, it certainly took a toll on an emotional level, but there were some indefinable sources which urged me on. I knew that it was going to be difficult to get a publisher because this, the subject of xenophobia is very, very controversial. So it took quite a long time, and also the refugee situation is something that a lot of people don't want to or can't deal with, which is, is rather sad because it has many, many, many sides. Um, anyway, and also there was a strong sense of feeling of tenacity which saw me through the long process, although I'm extremely sensitive by nature and much too sensitive for my own good. Anyway, my husband's solid support during that time was very, very important. And also the belief that Anfasa had in me, they gave me an award in order to write the book. And they are the Academic and Nonfiction Authors Association of South Africa. You know, it's interesting that you said there was a reluctance um, on the part of publishers, because when I first saw this book, I must be honest, a part of me didn't want to read it because I was ooh, scared that the subject matter was going to be so heavy and depressing. But it was actually incredibly uplifting. It was devastating, but uplifting with miracles, complete miracles in the book. Can you share with us what you learned from Adolphine? Um, it's very encouraging to hear you say that, Vanessa. Um, through Adolphine, I realized, as I had 
known before, but she really demonstrated me this to me in a very, very real way, that there's just nothing that the human spirit cannot deal with or overcome when there is the will and certain toughness in a human being. And also I learned how important it is to speak out because we all don't all have influence in the world. We often think that only the powerful people in, in government and privileged people, but we all have a voice and we have to make it heard and we can make a change. She used to speak out in buses and trains against xenophobia when she was in Cape Town. People used to call her Amakwere Kwere and other derogatory names. And eventually she said to me, Still, I thought to myself, I will keep speaking out until God says to me, Adolphine, today you will shut up. It's incredible. She's incredible. You're also incredible to have written this book. (laughs) And you fused the political and the personal with extensive footnotes. Where did your research take you? Well, I realized that there was a lot about the background in the conflicts of Africa that needed to be lifted out in order to tell her story because it affected her life so much. So I learned more about the power-besotted Mobutu Sese Seko. Um, The past French president, François Mitterrand, described him once as a walking bank vault with a leopard skin cap. His rule came close to destroying Adolphine's life completely. And then also there was Patrice Lumumba, who was a revered freedom fighter, and he later became the first prime minister of the DRC. Um, Adolphine loved, absolutely loved her father, and he was very, very good in politics. And this was his hero. He was 15 when, um, when Lumumba died, apparently under a moonlit tree in an unidentified part of Katanga. And he wrote a letter to his wife, Pauline, uh, before he died, which was poignant and, and very, very, very sad, um, which I've quoted in the book. So I, I came across all these things. And also uh, it, the world politics before, during, and after the First Congo War, which are very convoluted but extremely interesting. And there's not a lot written about it. I had to really search. Uh, so that was my, my journey in that way. But it it. it led along a wonderful, interesting part, which I think we should all know about because we live in Africa, you know. We should all read this book, definitely. Where can our listeners obtain a copy of your book? They can contact me, Estelle Nietlin, at 083-456-1998. So for your copy of Escape from Lumbambashi, a refugee's journey on foot to reunite her family by Estelle Nietling, contact the author directly on 83 083- Four five six one double nine eight. Romance Like we never knew 
my hills and the clouds my heart went crazy too and madly I said I love you too soon I heard you say this dream is for death that's Portugal love and able and when the showers fill uh, those tears I know so well uh, they told me it was being a fool in me yes I found an April dream in Portugal with you when we discovered romance like we knew and morning brought the rain and now my dreams too but still the God says I Baba the da 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 did yes you're listening to April in Portugal by one of my favorites, Louis Armstrong, and this is Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. In our guest review slot this month, creative director, runner, and all-round smart cat, Jabulani Segege, jumps in to tell us about a new memoir by one of South Africa's most famous runners, Winged Messenger by Bruce Fordyce. All right, Jabs. Is this one a marathon or a sprint? When a friend suggested that I read Winged Messenger by Bruce Fordyce, I, my first thought was, hmm, there's definitely not a chance that I'll be running a Comrades Marathon anytime soon. I mean, the Comrades is regarded as one of the world's toughest ultra marathons, and I mean, it's 90 kilometers. I, I, yeah, I mean, I was like, that's not for me. But I mean, it piqued my interest because the book is by obviously Bruce Fordyce, I mean, the legendary runner. And it's a journey about him building up to his first Comrades Marathon uh, run. And I mean, like, I can only imagine the psychological preparation, never mind physical and emotional, that people go through when building up for that. I've got friends who've done it and they've told themselves they're never going to do it again. But my man Bruce here, he's won it nine times meaning he's run it more than nine times, and that nine times winning it is a record. So I was very interested in kind of like what went through his mind when he was building up to first run this thing. And I mean, like, I mean, it's just actually the fact that when he started training for it, it was during a pivotal time in SA's history. You know, it was in 1976, and he was going to run it the following year. And I think something that he talks about that's very fundamental is... You know, the June, 16 June, um, 76 uprising. You know, like, it was just chaos all around him, he says. And I guess it felt, you know, what would be called in the series Stranger Things, the upside down. Like, it must have felt like a bizarre world to him where he couldn't make head or tails or sense of anything. You know, it just did not, it just did not make sense. And I think Mr. Fordyce found solace and he found order and he found a way to make sense of everything, or at least find respite from everything in his running. 
and you get that and also when you see how meticulous because the book is formatted as a training diary after the introductions in the beginning it's one of the training diary and he was actually very meticulous at documenting things i mean even facts like the fact that when he got dumped by his then girlfriend elaine while training for the comrades like his first one his suppressed libido played a part in his journey to the comrades because i guess he had extra energy to spare um, <laughs> so it's paper with anecdotes like that and which really ground this iconic figure in the running world and what i enjoyed also about bruce's memoir was how it actually builds up and it actually makes you realize that it's actually more than about running yes it is running but the running is um, you know not to sound pretentious but it is a metaphor for something else and i think that's what that's why even non-runners will get something out of it i mean i'm an amateurish runner as in i run but I don't run kind of, you know, long races and things like that. But I still running because I can be alone with my thoughts or listen to music. And I think that's what Bruce, when he got a chance to be alone with his thoughts. So he could find his center. And that center is what led him to be involved with student protests at the university, you know, in, in support of anti-apartheid movements and be against what happened on 16th of June, 1976. And... You know, what it shows you is that Bruce, he started running because he was unfit. He didn't set out to run the Comrades Marathon. He started running because he was unfit. He says that when he started running, he started getting fit again after realizing how unfit he was after playing an old boys game of rugby. And he was huffing and puffing, you know, in the second half and just dying and waiting for the game to end. Realized he needed to get fit again. And when he did his first run to start getting fit again, he says he ran 10 minutes. And then after that, he walked more than he ran. And for me, it's similar where after I'd had my kiddies tendon severed in a friendly game of interagency soccer, yes, I know you burn after blogging. Um, my kiddies tendon was reconstructed. I was in a cast for eight weeks and a moon boot for six. And after that, my muscle had atrophied. And then I had to, guess, be confident enough to start running again. And it took a while, but then my then girlfriend and now wife encouraged me to do that. And now I try and run regularly. And all it was was about taking that first step. And that's what the, the book, Winged Messenger, tells you or shows you. It's all about taking that first step. And that's why I say it's a metaphor for everything else in life as well. Because, you know, as a dear friend and colleague, Mark Winkler, you know, used to say, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. And it is a thing of, you know, you just have to start something in order to be able to do something. And if you never start you'll never know if you can do it. And I guess that's what Mr. Fordyce is telling us with this book and inspires me to dream that I could run the Comrades. Inspires me to dream, but I'm definitely not running it. But yes, pick up the book and it's an enjoyable read and you'll actually burn through it. So I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks, Jabu, for telling us about Winged Messenger and that's by Bruce Fordyce. And now, drumroll please, for another guest reviewer, 10-year-old Yusuf Asfat wants to recommend some adventure. The Cave Challenge by Bear Grylls. I'm a huge fan of this author and of this reviewer too. Take it away, Yusuf.
watching star that shines for you. Seven wonders One little kiss Can tell you This is true Sometimes an April day Will suddenly bring showers Rain to grow the flowers For her first boo But April love can slip right through your fingers So if she's the one, don't let her Suddenly bring showers Rain to grow the flowers For her first bouquet But April love Can slip right through your fingers So if she's the was April Love, sung by Pat Boone. And finally, before we all go back to our to-read piles for next month's show, I want to tell you about a book I absolutely adored. In fact, I can tell you so far, I think it's my favorite read of 2021. So, if you happen to know anyone who works at Pan Macmillan, bribe them for an uncorrected proof copy of this book. Or you could pre-order it, or you could wait for it to come out over the next week or so and buy it, or hijack the truck as it comes in from the printers. Do what you have to do to get your hands on a copy of How I Accidentally Became a Global Stock Photo and Other Strange and Wonderful Stories by Shabnam Khan. This is a collection of stories, and they range from the author's childhood growing up in a religious family with three sisters in Asheville, Durban, a suburb of mostly middle-class Indians skirting the edges of gritty overport, as the author describes it. And it goes on to her love affair with David Duchovny, the time she spent teaching children in a remote village in the Himalayas, traveling to America as a single Muslim woman in 2015 to attend a writer's retreat, and, of course, how Shabnam Khan accidentally became a global stock photo, and so many more stories. I read these essays with a smile on my face and charm and recognition in my heart. The author just nails it. I mean, I haven't ever done any of these things. I've never been interrogated about my secret marriage, like the author was on page 39, nor have I had the experience of shaving my head bald, like she does on page 46, and yet somehow Shabnam Khan is me. And I grew up in an entirely different way and different place, and yet with exactly the same feelings and experiences. I haven't been trapped in Delhi after an earthquake, 
like she has been on page 82. I haven't shown my jath in Times Square like Shabnam did on page 110. And yet, I have travelled in the exact same way as Shabnam Khan. This book gets me. So I'm going to tell you again in case you missed it. It's called How I Became a Global Stock Photo by Shabnam Khan. And it's coming to a bookstore near you this month. So beg, buy or steal a copy or figure out how to hijack that truck because I'm not parting with my uncorrected proof copy for anything. And so that's it from the Book Choice team for April. So many books, so little time, right? My thanks go to Mawandi for putting together the show and to Rick Everett for a beautiful selection of April compositions and to all our incredible reviewers who put in the time to read and tell us about these amazing books. If you missed any of the reviews or titles, our Book Choice podcast will be up on the FMR website shortly. We're playing out with I'll Remember April, sung by Doris Day. I hope all the books you read this month make your day. And if all goes according to plan, you'll be hearing from me again right here on Book Choice in May. Stay safe and happy reading. This lovely day will lengthen into evening. We'll sigh goodbye to all we've ever had. Alone where we have walked together.